God is working in a mighty way among the Jewish people today. Actually, he works so mightily that it reminds us of the book of Acts and the way God has dealt with our people um, at that time. Now, unfortunately, many parts of the global church are not even aware of what God is doing among the Jewish people, while other parts of the global church that are aware are under confusion as to what it means, uh, all that God is doing among the Jewish people. And as always, when there is confusion among God's people, Satan is trying to get in and kind of exacerbate this confusion. So we want today in the next 40 minutes or so, talk about several issues that hopefully will clarify some of the potential confusion. So in the next 40 minutes, we want to talk about Yeshua, Jesus our Messiah, as the ultimate wisdom and authority of God. We want to look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 and at the messianic miracles that are taking place over there. We want to talk briefly about the Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism, what happened in the Jewish world since the time of Jesus until today, and this mystery of the partial blindness of the Jewish people. And finally, we want to talk about, uh, in some detail, but briefly, on what God is doing among Jewish people today, all over the world, and especially in Israel. So the first question we want to ask is, what are messianic miracles? We read in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 4 and 5, that Jesus answered the disciples of John the Baptist and he said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In this short passage, Jesus, Yeshua, is directly referring to very famous verses from the book of Isaiah in chapter 35, verses 4 to 6. This passage details some of the things that the Messiah will do, and therefore the title Messianic Miracles, that will help us identify the Messiah when he comes. And this is the big question. How are we going to know the Messiah when he comes? The Jewish people ask that question all the time. The answer of the Hebrew Bible is there are many, many different details given about the Messiah, one of which is those messianic um, miracles. Major way of identifying the Messiah, these are miracles that only he can do upon coming. And so with this as an introduction, uh, let's turn to Luke chapter 5. I want to read with you verses 12 to 16. And it came about that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand, Jesus that is, and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But the news about him was spread even farther, and great multitudes were gathering to hear him 
and be healed of their sicknesses. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. So it's a very famous occurrence where a man um, that is a leper, full of leprosy, Luke the doctor tells us, comes before Jesus. Leprosy, you probably know or you may know, that is a infectious skin disease that is characterized by disfiguring skin sores that eventually um, manifest in nerve damage and progressive debilitation. Until the 20th century, there was no cure for leprosy and it would eventually lead to a very, very painful death for the person that had it. Uh, throughout history, including Bible times, including times of the New Testament, lepers were cast away from society. And there's a wide array in the ancient Near East and Asian world, all over the world really, of variety of religious ceremonies and rites performed um, that actually indicate the social death of the leper. Social death. And, um, you know, in the Bible itself, Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 deal with this issue exclusively with the issues of a leper, how to identify them, how to behave towards them, their fate, and as we'll see also in chapter 14, the healing of the leper. Um, I want to turn with you to Leviticus chapters, chapter 13. I want to read a couple of verses to, to Again, we can't read the whole chapter, but verses 44 to 46 talk about how, um, how is the leper man to behave once he's identified. So verse 44, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. His infection is on his head. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So in these short verses, we have the social and ceremonial and familial um, ramifications of leprosy to the leper. And we see that, first of all, he had to be examined by the priest in ancient Israel, and the priest, once identified the leprosy, would announce him unclean. And it translates here as surely announce him. It's actually in the Hebrew. Um, he's unclean, is surely unclean. It's like really super unclean. And the uncleanness is not just physical, but it's primarily spiritual. He cannot come before God. He cannot come to the house of God. Um, his physical appearance will be able to be identified by others immediately that he is a leper. And so he'll cover his face all the way to his mustache, to the nose. Um, his hair is going to be um, just disorganized. His clothes are going to be torn. And wherever he walks, he has to tell in advance that he's approaching. He has to shout, unclean, unclean. And so um, that was his experience to be an outcast, to live outside the camp, um, lonely, you know, both physically, socially, spiritually. And, um, you know, uh, that's the biblical account in the Mishnah, in the traditional rabbinic writing. There's actually many more details that were added as to the uh, leper and his uh, casting out. 
Now, for the leper, the day that he was pronounced unclean is actually a social death. It's the last day he will see his family, you know, from some sort of a proximity. He can only see them from a distance. He can't live with them any longer. Um, just a, a terrible, terrible uh, day for him and his loved ones or her. Now, it's interesting that leprosy touches the skin. The skin is medically known as our biggest physical organ. For every person, it's the biggest organ uh, in the human body. It's called the external brain. And the reason it's called that is because our skin is, most, in most cases, the first line of defense against everything that um, happens outside of body, any external stimuli. Now, there have been some very famous and interesting uh, experiments done with uh, both monkeys but also babies in orphanages uh, following World War II that demonstrate, for time's sake I'm not going to go into it, but they demonstrate in no uncertain terms that as humans and actually as, as, as created beings, we need touch. And as humans, we need physical human touch to survive, not just to thrive, but to survive. And so that kind of emphasizes for us that the leper, you know, from this day on that he's pronounced a leper, will never, never ever again have a loving human touch. Actually, uh, in many cases, we read about that even in, in the biblical accounts, that people would, you know, stone them or hit them with sticks. When children would see them, they would run away shouting. Um, just very, very, very sad and harsh reality for the leper. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, we see that we, there are some famous lepers. Of course, there's Miriam, Moses' sister. There's Naaman, the Aramaic general. But here is the most amazing and most important fact to understand. In recorded Jewish history, in the Hebrew Bible and beyond, there is never, there is not any record of a leper that was healed. No leper was ever healed. So in that respect, Leviticus chapter 14, that talks about the different steps to be taken when a leper is healed, are completely theoretical. And this is one of the reasons that healing the leper is a miracle of messianic magnitude. It's only the Messiah that can perform such a miracle. Now, uh, <clears throat> for time's sake, we're not going to go there, but I, I welcome your uh, interrogation or uh, just look at Leviticus chapter 14. Look at the three stages of cleansing. So, as I said, completely theoretical, but if a leper feels that he is healed, then he needs to call, he cannot go there, but he needs to ask that a priest would come to see him. This is under the Sinai Covenant. The priest would come to see him, he comes outside the camp, he gives him some sort of an initial examination, and if the priest is positive that there is a possibility that the leprosy is healed, then the uh, leper sacrifices two birds, one is slaughtered, one is released, signifying the potential uh, new life that he may have. And then the leper, on the second phase, the leper has to shave all of his body, all the hair on his body, and sit under supervision of the priest for a whole week. During that week, the priests are uh, uh, conducting some sort of an investigation. They say, was he really a leper? If he was, he was announced a leper, and there's a record in the temple for that. Second, is he really healed? So 
during this week they examine the uh, the wounds and they see um, if they're truly healed and if is healed or she is healed if the leper is healed then what are the circumstances what caused that absolute miracle now on phase three if the leper is indeed healed he would sacrifice four different types of sacrifices guilt offering sin offering burnt offering and grain offering which symbolizes his return to a uh, fellowship with God and men so, you know, we see that in, in, uh, in our chapter, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, Luke, the doctor, tells us that the man was full of leprosy. That means that he's in an advanced stage of leprosy. He had that for some years. He probably is actually um, not only disfiguring physically, but likely um, his situation is so bad that he's uh, near death. So, um, you know... The, what's the greatest need of this man? It's not just the physical healing. It's first of all acceptance. And we'll see that in what he asks Jesus to do. You know, I think that echoes uh, our need for acceptance at times that we come to our God and to our fellow brothers and sisters. And, um, and that's a, a great need for each one of us. Now, the biggest risk that the leper could take is actually do what he did. He's probably a leper for, at this point in time for years, maybe decades. He is used to be stoned and hit with sticks and you know everybody running away from him, not wanting to get close to him. It's a huge risk for him to run to Jesus. Actually, it's a risk of death, literal death, to run to Jesus, fall at his feet and beg for mercy. First of all, you know, he doesn't think that anyone can have pity or mercy on him. But he takes that great risk. And what does he ask Jesus? He says, Jesus, I know you can heal me, but do you want to? Are you willing? I know you're able. If you want, if you're willing, I know you can heal me. So he has trust. He has faith in Jesus' power. Not so much on his will. Am I, am I worthy of your goodness, Lord? Is basically the question that he's asking. Now, it's easy to imagine uh, the, the reaction of the disciples. Now, they're probably drawing back when this man comes forward. Uh, Peter maybe gets a sword or a stick or something's like, Lord, get back. You know, I'm going to hit this guy for you. But um, as we see, Jesus' reaction is very, very different. And what did Jesus need to do to heal the leper if he was willing? What did he need to do? What does God need to do in order to create? He just needs to speak. When God says something, it's done. It's created. It happened. And that's all that Jesus needs to do. But what did Jesus do? And that's very important. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. Um, that was unthinkable. You know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, when something clean touches the unclean, the clean becomes unclean. But in Jesus' case, when he, as the clean, the pure one, touches the unclean, the unclean is becoming pure or clean. And that's exactly what happened. This is the touch of Jesus. The leper, we read, is healed immediately. 
And Jesus tells him, tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And we can only imagine what it would be like in the temple for the leper to come and say, I was healed. I mean, calling the priest, first of all, uh, probably outside the camp. And, you know, Jesus' healing was complete. We read that the leprosy disappeared altogether. They go to the records and they see, okay, this man, you know, this man, son of that man from the, this family and that tribe. Indeed, X amount of years ago, he was declared a leper. And yet, he stands here healed. How, how did he heal? What happened? So we can only imagine what took place as he tells them a, a man named Jesus healed him. Now, this important to understand is, is a very important step in the candidacy of Jesus' Messiahship. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a second. Um, but it's, it's a powerful testimony of Jesus' Messiahship to the Jewish leadership of the day. Let's continue with Luke chapter 5 for the next messianic miracle. I read verses 17 to 19. And it came about one day that he was teaching. There was some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And behold, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of him, in front of Jesus. And not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his treacher right in the center in front of Jesus. So there seems to be some lapse of time between the time of the healing of the leper and the account uh, of the paralyzed man. Uh, they both take place in the Galilee. But uh, over here, it's interesting to note, we see both the multitudes, but very specifically, Luke is describing to us very specifically, there were teachers of the law, there were Pharisees from every village in the Galilee, and even from Judea, and even from Jerusalem, which was three days' walk. So for whatever reason, there was um, great, great interest of the leadership the spiritual leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin, at the time, in Jesus. Now, it is not an accident that it comes right after the issue of the leper. And we can imagine, again, how the leper goes out to the temple, they do all the investigation, they found out that Jesus healed him. And at that time, in a time of Second Temple Judaism, there was a specific procedure to find out the person's claim for Messiahship. And the way it was done, the Sanhedrin would send a convoy or several convoys from them to conduct a two-stage investigation of the person claiming to be the Messiah. And there was a great messianic expectation, so they created a procedure. So on the first stage, it was a stage where the delegation would only observe. They would only watch and listen, but they would not ask any question out loud. Only listen to the teaching and um, see what's going on. On the second phase, the second phase is called interrogation. So in this phase, the leaders of the Sanhedrin would ask the candidate for messiahship, they ask him questions and examine 
his replies. Now, as we look through the gospel accounts, it's, it's easy to see how there are times that the, um, those that are sent, like here, from the Sanhedrin are only watching. They're not asking, or at least they're not asking out loud. But in other instances, they're asking Jesus' question out loud. It's just the different phases. Now, at the end of those two phases, the Sanhedrin was, um, you know, gathering together and they make a formal decision whether this person is the Messiah or not. Is he accepted as such or not? So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the, the crowd that is uh, in front of us. Paralysis, as uh, probably we may know, is a medical condition that can be either from birth or uh, as a result of an accident, but it usually means that uh, the person is a paraplegic, cannot move his hands or his feet, and it's usually caused by some sort of a serious uh, nerve damage, either to the muscles or to the spine. And the paralytic that is described here in this chapter he is clearly unable to mobilize himself in any way and he's completely dependent upon his environment. We're going to mention this in a second, um, but um, his environment, in this case his friends, seems to be a pretty loyal bunch. Now we have no idea how, how long this person has been in this uh, state as a paralytic, whether it was an accident and, or whether this was something that happened from birth. We do know, however, he had friends that truly loved and care for him. So um, even more than just a physical limitation, um, paralysis was also considered in Second Temple period in biblical times as a spiritual punishment and certainly as a spiritual uncleanness. We read in Leviticus 21 verse 18, no one who has a defect shall approach that is the, the altar, a blind man or a lame man or he who has disfigured face or deformed limb. So paralytic could not, he was ceremonially unclean, could not come to God. We read in Deuteronomy 15, 21, but if it has any defect such as lameless or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So it goes both for the, the one bringing, bringing the sacrifice and the worshiper and also the sacrifice itself. Now, what we do see in this account in, in Luke 5 is that the paralytic's friends are a pretty tenacious and loyal uh, group of people. They were not able to approach. I mean, they really wanted to help their friends. They had faith that Jesus can heal their friend. And as they bring him, they see that there are just too many people. They simply cannot approach and enter the house. And in true Israeli form, they start to improvise. They go to the roof. They take the roof apart and they lower the stretcher with the bed, with the, the, the bed or the stretcher that, that he had. So perseverance here in action. Um, and Jesus specifically mentions that he sees that the friends have faith. That's a wonderful thing to say about someone, especially if he comes from Jesus. Let's read verses 20 to 26. In seeing their faith, Jesus said, Son of man, or son of Adam, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying in their heart, not out loud, Who is this man who speaks blasphemous? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of the reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? 
But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and take up your stretcher and go home. And at once he rose up before them and took up the bed he's been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Pretty amazing account. Jesus is referring to the paralytic as son of man or literally it, he, he actually said son of Adam, probably referring to his um, the fact that he has inherited the sinful nature from Adam like the rest of the human race under the Adamic curse of sin. And Jesus tells him, Jesus sees to the immediate significant, the, the most real need of that man. And he tells him, your sins are forgiven you. The physical healing is not the main point. It's the spiritual uncleanness. Now, um, in the Sinai Covenant, the term forgiveness of sins is actually fairly rare. And you can find it, basically it only appears in Leviticus chapters 4 to 6, where the different sacrifices are detailed. And if the sacrifice is offered uh, in this specific way, you know, particularly the sin offering and the burnt offering, it is said, and God will forgive the sin. So the language that Jesus is using here is very, very specific. In verse 21, we see the reaction of the scribes, the Pharisees, the learned ones that have come from the Sanhedrin. And we have to say their theological understanding was 100% on target. They understood that Jesus is saying, I have the authority to forgive sin. They understood that Jesus is saying that he is God enfleshed, that took form of flesh. And um, so they're reasoning in their hearts and they're not just blurting it out, although I'm sure they wanted to, because they are in the first phase of interrogation of the candidacy for messiahship, and therefore they do not ask questions at this time. Verse 22, as always, Jesus knows the heart of man. By the way, it's another characteristic that is unique only to God, and Jesus knows what's in their heart, and he demonstrates to them in their own language in their own way, who he is. In, in his wisdom, he also demonstrates his authority. Now, in the Mishnah, in the rabbinic uh, literature, and that kind of began already in Jesus' day, there is a form of argumentation of proving something easy from something that's a lot more difficult. And this is why Jesus is asking them, well, which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to um, tell him, get up and walk. Now, clearly, for a regular person, saying something is a whole lot easier, you know, than to say to someone, I mean, to actually see um, a paralytic get up and walk. And so Jesus proves to them um, his authority. And, um, you know, by doing that, by saying that or by doing that, Jesus is giving the Sanhedrin of the day, 
the people that were around there at the time, and also us, only three possibilities to choose from regarding who he is. And you know, uh, particularly among the Jewish people, I have some uh, friends that I talked to about Jesus sometimes, and they said, yes, Jesus was a, was a good man, he was a prophet, he was a teacher. Now here's the thing, Jesus never gave us this option. Because when he says, I have authority to forgive sins, when he does those kind of messianic miracles, there's only three possibilities. One, that he is absolutely out of his mind. I mean, he thinks he has authority, but he really doesn't. He has some sort of an illusion. So that's the first possibility, that Jesus is crazy. The second one is that he's a liar. It's all a show. He rehearsed that in advance with the paralytic to make the Sanhedrin and us think that he has this kind of authority. And the third one, the third possibility, is that he's truly who he is, that he is God in the flesh that has the authority to forgive sins and later on sacrificed himself and resurrected from the dead to justify anyone that believes in him. So these are the only three possibilities that Jesus gives us as to who he is. We read in verse 26 that all the audience was amazed, including, including the Pharisees and the convoy from the Sanhedrin. And they all were praising God, saying, we have seen wondrous, wondrous things today. Again, referring to this messianic miracle. Now, you know, if I try to put myself in the shoes of the Sanhedrin, as to making the decision about Jesus' messiahship, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of actually unthinkable to think that shortly after this, the Sanhedrin, some of which may have been there and seen it, and certainly all of them heard first-hand testimony as to what Jesus did, they have decided that Jesus is not from God, that he's not the messiah. They decided that he is a liar. He's a blasphemous sorcerer. That was the formal decision of the Sanhedrin of the time. And that's, that's truly amazing, you know, because um, uh, it, it, and it's a mystery. How can the leaders of our people 2,000 years ago be so blind? Paul is uh, grappling with this in the epistle to the Romans. And in Romans chapter 11, <clears throat> he says in verse 32, this is Paul's words, for God has concluded them all in unbelief, talking about the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership, that he may have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways uh, past finding out. So Paul is making a point, making an argument and explains at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, that God has submitted everybody to blindness and to sin and actually caused partial blindness to the Jewish people from that day to this regarding the Messiahship of Jesus. But he also says in verse 25 and 26, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. The mystery is the fact that the Jewish people are blinded to the Messiahship of Jesus, nationally speaking, 
So Paul is saying, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that the partial blindness or partial, partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. What Paul is saying here that there will be a time in the future where nationally speaking the nation of Israel, all the Jewish people that are living at that time that this will happen will look upon him whom we have pierced and believe on him as our Messiah. We're not quite there yet, you know, and the blindness of the Jewish people, Paul is saying in Romans 11, the riches of God in the Messiah went to all the world, to all the Gentiles. And if we look at the path of the gospel in those 2,000 years, we see it began in Jerusalem, began in Israel, went westbound, surrounded the world, as it were, and is coming back to Israel, to Asia and the Middle East, the Arab countries, the Muslim countries now, and now we're seeing the first fruit of a revival in Israel. Now, a couple of words about uh, Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism, Judaism as we know it today. What happened in the Jewish world since the time of Jesus and until today? Now, of course, as we said just now, the Jewish leadership in Jesus' day rejected his messiahship and as a, as, as a consequence Israel is a nation we have rejected him nationally now we read of course there were the disciples there were tens of thousands of Jewish believers in Christ we read about that in the book of Acts we read that many priests were believers in Yeshua um, however several things that have happened have after Jesus resurrection have alienated Jesus from the Jewish people so in the year 70 AD, there was the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And during that revolt, or the result of that revolt, the Jews stopped paying taxes to Rome. Rome came, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, killed the vast majority of the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the priests. You know, they were the rich, um, uh, the rich part of the po Jewish population, lived in Jerusalem. They basically killed all of them. However, in 70 AD, the Romans still allowed the Jewish people to remain in the land of Israel, but not in Jerusalem, and certainly not to rebuild the temple. So the Jewish leadership went to the city of Yavne, closer to on the western coast of, um, of Israel, and over there from the year 70 AD until 135, a period of 65 years, was a very formative season in the life of the Jewish people that shaped the Jewish world to where it is today. So the beginning tenet is you cannot be Jewish and believe in Jesus. That was the basic tenet. The second tenet is only Pharisaic Judaism is a acceptable form of Judaism. So we said that the priests were destroyed in 70 AD. The Sanhedrin that had the majority of, of I'm sorry, of Sadducees, now is comprised completely of Pharisees. There is a group of Jewish believers in Jesus that survived, but they are rejected. They're not accepted. And several things have happened, um, you know, in the Jewish world. There were no more priests. There was no temple. So the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership among the Jewish people moved from the priests, the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron, only God chose them to rabbis. 
Now, the big difference is if only God chooses the, the, the Aaronic family as priests, a rabbi can become a rabbi only if 10 other rabbis lay their hands on him and pray for him. That's the only way from that time to this that anyone can be a rabbi. So the switch is enormous. The spiritual leadership is no longer chosen by God, but it's chosen by the Pharisees. There's other rabbis until today. Uh, beyond that, you know, in the Jewish world, the process has begun of um, developing the uh, Hebrew text called the Masoretic text that uh, also emphasizes rejection of the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a biblical translation to Greek or the Hebrew Bible translation to Greek done 200 years before Jesus' time. There was no messianic argumentation at the time. And the Septuagint is, is uh, demonstrating Jewish understanding of the Hebrew Bible pre-Second Temple period or pre-Jesus, before there was a messianic argument. Uh, but the rabbis reject that. And then the big question after, after the Temple is destroyed is, how can we get atonement for sin? And the answer that is given is by uh, giving alms for the poor and by prayer. And certain biblical passages or parts of biblical verses are taken out of context to justify that. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, is the way Jewish people look at sin until today. Basically, you don't look at it. And we certainly don't make any sacrifices. Now, this season uh, concluded in what's called the Second Revolt Against Rome, the Bar Kokhba um, uh, Revolt. The Jewish leadership of the day declared a very cruel army general called Bar Kozba. They changed his name to Bar Kokhba, which is Aramaic for Son of the Star, which refers to um, uh, the book of Numbers 24, 17, or, uh, that talks about a star shall come out of David, a messianic prophecy, the words of Balak, and basically they declared him to be the Messiah. All the Jewish people gathered around him as their leader to fight the Romans and restore the kingdom of David. All the Jewish people except the Jewish believers in Jesus. They didn't join under his flag because they said, this guy is not the Messiah. We know the real one. That's Yeshua. That's not this guy. And so the Jewish believers didn't participate in this revolt that eventually in 135 AD resulted in complete annihilation of the Jewish population in Israel. Very few survived. The price of a Jewish slave was, uh, in Rome was less than a, um, a loaf of bread. There were just so many of them. So that's really 135 is when the um, second Jewish exile has begun. So when we talk about Judaism today, in our day and age, it's important we understand this is an offshoot, a direct offshoot of the Pharisees. And it's no accident that in the New Testament, Jesus is warning us um, against the Pharisees. Now, with all that, I'll say in a sentence, God has used Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism to keep our nation to keep the Jewish people. We were scattered around the world, persecuted with no land and no language for almost 2,000 years. And what kept us as a nation is the rabbinic, pharisaic faith, if you will. And so today, here in the land of Israel, 
There's more and more Jewish people that claim Yeshua, Jesus, as our Messiah. And we share with our friends, with our families, with our neighbors, with our people, this great news. You know, uh, I want to I ask another question here. Do, does a Jewish person need Jesus to be saved? Do Jewish people need Jesus to be saved, to believe in Him? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yeshua himself says in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one, no matter who you are, a Jew, a Gentile, a Chinese, a Korean, no matter who you are, you cannot come to God except through faith in the Messiah, Yeshua. And therefore, not sharing the gospel with Jewish people is a terrible form of anti-Semitism. So make sure you take it to heart. The greatest need of Jewish people is not, you know, humanitarian aid and it's not public relations. The greatest need of the Jewish people is to hear about Yeshua of Nazareth in a way that they can understand, that they can relate. Now, I just want to tell you very, very briefly, I can't do justice to it, but just take a couple of minutes and tell you about what God is doing among Jewish people today, worldwide, but especially here in Israel. So in Israel, there are about eight, eight and a half million Jewish people that are Hebrew speakers. That's the extent of, of Hebrew speakers around the world, about eight and a half million. Our evangelistic gospel films in Hebrew were viewed 44 million times. This is times five, five times the size of the Hebrew-speaking popula Hebrew population worldwide. So the exposure of the gospel to our people in the last seven or ten years is absolutely enormous. And we get a tremendous uh, response you know, both sometimes prejudices that are not so positive, but also many times quite positive. And we have the privilege of leading many of our family members, our neighbors, our nation to the Lord. But it's still uh, important for me to emphasize, we're still a remnant. This is not the time that all Israel gets saved, but hopefully we're at the cusp of this. Beyond that, you know, we live in a region, we read about that in the news all the time, that Israel is in conflict with our neighboring countries. The Jews are in conflict with the Arabs. This goes back 4,000 years to Isaac and Ishmael. And what we see today happening among our staff, among our students, among uh, the people living in Israel and the Middle East, we see that Jewish people and Arab people, once we become followers of Yeshua, disciples of Yeshua, we love each other and we can serve the Lord together. This is something that we see day in and day out. We also have a very unique program of women leadership. Women in the Middle East are often marginalized and they don't get a place of uh, not just leadership, but any, any voice whatsoever. So besides the ongoing pastoral leadership programs we have here at our college and seminary, we have a special program for women uh, leadership. And we also from here, from Israel, we share the gospel with Arabs and Muslims throughout the Middle East. We feel it's a blessing that the children of Isaac can also share with the children of Ishmael.
So finally, you know, I want to share with you what's the, the best thing that you can do if, uh, what, the best thing you can do for a Jewish person. And I often meet people that God has put in their hearts the love, the love that he has for the Jewish people from studying his word, from uh, uh, praying and, and being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. They have the lo love from God to the Jewish people. And they ask, what can we do? And sometimes people go online and they give money as an expression to their love. And it's great. But please be prudent. Because as I told you, what Jewish people most need is to hear the gospel in a way they can understand. So if you have Jewish neighbors or friends, um, present the gospel to them clearly. Make sure to use the language of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, not the New Testament, because Jewish people don't know the New Testament. It has no authority uh, for Jewish people in, in their own eyes. They don't, it doesn't have any authority. However, there is some respect to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Bible. So um, get somewhat familiarized. You don't need to get to be an expert, but get a little bit of familiarity with the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible regarding the Messiahship regarding the Messiah. How are we going to recognize him? So, for example, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, not in other places around the world. Um, when is the Messiah to be born? Read about that in Daniel chapter 9, particularly verse 26. We read about the suffering of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53. We read about the death of the Messiah for, for sins, again in Isaiah 53 and verses 8 and 9, and we also read about the Messiah's resurrection in Isaiah 53 and verse 10. So these are just examples, but they can go a long way. So as we conclude, you know, let me ask, who is Jesus for you? He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good guy. He didn't give us this option, and each one of us has to choose. Um, who is he? I'd like to proclaim before you that he is God's authority, God's wisdom, and um, he has all power. Now we can ask ourselves as we read this passage, are there areas in our life that we are unclean, that we need to come afresh to Jesus and take a risk, come to him, say, Lord, I need you to heal me from uh, you know, this part in my life. And we can also ask, are there areas that we are paralyzed or, you know, for Jesus to heal us? Or are there people around us that need, that need us to be like the friend of the paralytic to carry them before the Lord? So I want to thank you. I want to bless you. I wish you God's blessing as you contemplate on the Messiahship of Jesus as it manifested in this chapter. Shalom and may God bless you.